Hello, and welcome to episode 71 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me this week is a guest co-host, Jeff McFarland from HiddenGameOfTennis.com. Jeff, how's it going? Great. I, I'm going to suggest that we not call it episode 71, and we call it episode AB1, After Baby. After Baby, yeah, I've got some new new distractions in my life. Hopefully you won't hear them in the podcast. But, uh, <laughs> Congratulations. Hello. Thank you. We'll cross our fingers for that. Um, so some of you regular listeners will remember Jeff from episode 52, which was back during Indian Wells in March. We mostly talked about some WTA stuff then and some general analytics topics. I, I think even more so than with Carl and I, when, when Jeff and I get going, we could easily end up with a three and a half hour episode uh, speculating about these things. We're going to try not to do that, but, um, but you've been warned. So Jeff, yeah. Jeff is the like I mentioned he's from he writes the Hidden Game of Tennis website blog. There's some tools on there, so it isn't just a, a blog, but he's done lots of interesting stuff. And the reason that I wanted to to do this episode, we've been talking about it since last off season, I think, is Jeff's done some some interesting stuff rating players on on a historical basis. So starting to look at who who the best not just who the best players of all time are. We we talk enough about the goat debate on this show, but. Uh, but be, the level beneath the GOAT, the ones who are in the Hall of Fame, maybe should be in the Hall of Fame, but aren't, the ones who are in the Hall of Fame, but shouldn't be, da-da-da-da. These are really common debates in other sports. doesn't happen as much in tennis. The Hall of Fame isn't as big of a thing. But this is the, the week of the Hall of Fame induction ceremony. It happened a couple of days ago. Lee Na, uh, Yevgeny Kafelnikov, and Mary Pierce all went in. So, so Jeff, let's, let's start with them. We have these three new inductees uh, you you've developed some tools to to measure their careers compared to other Hall of Famers. How do you feel about this group? Are, are, do these three deserve their place in Newport? Yeah, so it's a it's an interesting group. Uh, it's not a group of players that I think bowl you over. Uh, you know, one of the at least theoretical tests of whether you're a Hall of Famer is why are you watching them play? Are you thinking, oh my gosh, that person is a Hall of Famer? Uh, and, and I don't know that you would have said that about any of the three inductees. Uh, that said, um, you know, there are, there's a lot of context that you don't have when you're watching them at the time. There is some context you have, of course, but it, it's hard to put people in perspective while you're watching them. You're, you're biased by your personal feelings about all sorts of things that you see on the court or whether you just like them or whether they give, you know, funny speeches when they accept the trophy and and all sorts of other things i think uh that uh kafelnikov is a, a a solid choice and i think um i'd probably say the same about pierce i think uh lena is a little bit different i'm not going to say that she, she doesn't deserve it but i think that to the extent she deserves it it's not entirely based on the same things that we would use to evaluate other players she doesn't have the sort of record that in hindsight makes you think that she was a Hall of Famer. And I don't remember particularly thinking she was a Hall of Famer when I was watching her. She does have a couple Grand Slam wins, of course. And that seems to be the, really the linchpin to get in. Uh, you know, probably the most shocking thing about Lee Na to me in, in terms of a Hall of Fame uh, standing is I think she had, apart from her two Grand Slams, she won seven titles, seven. You know, yeah, that's one, not very many. Wow. No, one premiere. I think it's one premiere and six ordinary. Um, and, you know, of course, there are 
I think there are more premiers than there are masters, so I, I don't know. I sometimes equate them. I'm not sure they're entirely equatable, but uh, equal, I guess, is the word. Um, yeah, but, you know, that's not the kind of number that, that bowls you over. That said, you know, she has some intangible factors. I mean, the what she meant to a, an entire uh, group of people, um, I think she was the first Asian player to win a major. Um, she certainly was a likable player and, and helped promote uh, tennis uh, in, in China and elsewhere. So uh, I think there are a lot of things that she contributed to the game that probably uh, push her over the over the edge, but I don't think the, the sheer numbers. If I, I developed this thing, uh, championship shares, in which you give more credit to Grand Slam wins, you give some credit to Grand Slam finals that you didn't win, and more credit to premier titles, and then, you know, some a smidgen of credit to uh, various other miscellaneous titles, uh, just to sort of, you know, weight, uh, weight your accomplishments. And uh, as I wrote in the blog post about it, I don't really like to have a, a number cutoff for when someone makes it and when someone doesn't, but I do think it's useful to compare other people. And Lee Na is a pretty good comp. She sits right behind, uh, on my championship shares list, right behind Kuznetsova, who also has two Grand Slams. She has two Grand Slam finals. Uh, where Lee Na comes up short to Kuznetsova is that she has one fewer premiere and eight fewer other titles. Um, and so you probably have some idea in your mind whether you think Kuznetsova is a, you know, is a is a, a Hall of Famer. And I wouldn't base it entirely on championship shares, but I think that Kuznetsova got to number two. I think Lee Na topped out at number three. So we've got these these players with two slams, and I think correct me if I'm wrong on this. The Hall of Fame has sort of an automatic entry where. If you win three slams and have half a year at number one, something like that, then you don't need to go through the voting process. They just you're you're just in. Uh, so you have this group of players who have a slam or two, like like Lee Na does, like Kuznetsova. Uh, how much of the the decision process of of in this in the case of this year that the fans were involved, and that's something else I want to get to. But uh, however the vote, voting mechanism works, that. Tennis is built so much around the slams, um, fans, players, commentators, everybody's so focused on them. I mean, do you think these decisions are largely being made by just, okay, the three slam people are in, so let's look for the two slam people. <laughs> they're, they're the great ones. And, you know, championship shares may agree, they may not, because there's usually some correlation between slam wins, slam finals, and so on. But, I mean, it, it's, it, do you think that's what's going on here? We're just letting in the slam winners who are close to the automatic threshold i think there might be something to that uh you know i it's just more of a philosophical thing but it, if you're inside the hall of fame do you want the tennis hall of fame to be like say baseball's hall of fame or football's hall of fame where you know it's all about the integrity and really enshrining the the truly greats and of course they've all made mistakes uh for, for politics and and other reasons sometimes just misunderstandings uh, cough, well, cough, Harold Baines. Cough, cough. <laughs> uh, or do you want to be the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, sure, it has like, great bands in it, but it's basically just designed to put together an HBO show that everybody will watch. And so, you know, a lot of bands would say, oh, I don't care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Of course, they do care about it ultimately because the, 
their fans care about it. But it's a commercial enterprise. It's not about you know integrity or really even measuring who's great. It's just you know who will which five bands can we put in this year that we've forgotten to put in that the fans will tune into HBO and watch the ceremony for. And and so I wouldn't. I, I'm not suggesting that tennis has gone that far, but I do think you have a bit of a debate between wh- which of these things you want to do, or do you want to kind of split it and have different, you know, like you said, uh, we, we have automatic criteria, and then we have some other people we're just going to let the fans vote on. It, it's interesting because uh, the fan theory probably works pretty well for Lena. I mean, first of all, you've got a if she truly was as influential as everyone says in Asia, you've got a, a, a large number of people who are willing to vote uh, for her. But uh, also, if you look at who didn't get in, Conchita Martinez uh, was nominated along with them, and she did not get in. She has one slam, uh, and she has two finals appearances. So Lina has two slams and two finals appearances. Uh, Conchita won nine premier titles. Uh, Lee won one. And Conchita had 23, sort of call them ordinary titles. Lina had six. Uh, and I believe that Conchita, she might have achieved a slightly higher ranking than Lina. So why why Lee and not Conchita? You know, is it that one slam? Uh, and that overrides all the other accomplishments? Or or is it fan base? It's, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but... You know, on, on championship shares, Kachita Martinez is ahead of Kuznetsova, who's ahead of Lina. Lina is very close to Yana Novotna, who won one Grand Slam, had three finals, had two premieres, but won 20 other titles. And of course, Novotna was a fantastic doubles player, so what she did as a singles player almost doesn't matter. Uh, I, I, I don't have her doubles numbers in front of me, but they're off the chart. You wouldn't even, like, talk about her singles record. <laughs> you wouldn't have to, anyway, in her... Uh, Hall of Fame discussion, uh, just based solely on her doubles record. So, Do you uh, know, uh, you, you mentioned, so Con- Conchita missed the cut this time, and she's a generation behind some of these players who, who did get in. Um, are players who, who don't get in, are they eligible for future ballots? Do you know how that works? Will they have another chance? I think they do have another chance. I, I, I don't know the specific rules on that, but the point that you're that you also are making there is that uh, when you open it up to fan voting, you sometimes uh, lose the older players. That's the whole recency bias thing is that, you know, a lot of people who are voting, especially if you're voting online, uh, didn't watch a lot of Conchita Martinez. What they know about Conchita Martinez is probably more that she's coaching Pliskova than, than remembering what she did on the court. Uh, and so uh, to me, the the fan voting issue is a little bit problematic and in that regard, I don't I don't know whether um, how she did in the fan voting. I don't think they published the fan results. I think they blended the what they heard from the fans into their board discussions about who should get in. I mean, so, they probably didn't even keep track. They just figured, ah, oh, the fans are going to put Lena in, so let's just keep the phone lines open, let everybody feel like they had a part <laughs> in the decision. That, that's probably all it took. That's probably true. Uh, which. Uh, yeah, so that's that's not bad. But, you know, the other thing that's interesting about that is so, you know, uh, you've got uh, a couple of current players with two slams. You've got Muguruza with two slams. You've got Osaka with two slams. I mean, she's just getting started. But she could she could be Muguruza. She could go away the same way that Muguruza has essentially gone away. Um, I think Azarenka is a, a fairly easy call. 
Uh, Kerber is going to meet the automatic criteria that you mentioned because uh, she's got what she's got three slams now, right? And, yeah. uh, and but she only has like nine random titles. Other than that, she hasn't torn it up. But she did hit number one, and she did uh, she did win three slams. So she's going to be a pretty easy call. Everybody, if you look at this list of, and I don't want to confine this solely to championship shares, but uh, if you look at who's ahead of Lina. You've got Kuznetsova, so you can debate that. Martinez, debate that. You got Wozniacki, who's got one slam, but was number one for a long time and has a, a lot of titles. You and a Tracy, lot of fans, which will help if they continue to the A lot of fans, which is going to hurt, process. right? Uh, Tracy Austin, Kerber is practically automatic. Then you got Pierce, who's one of the other inductees, and I think is a, a, a good choice. I mean, apart from her two slams, she had four finals, four slam finals that she lost. Um, five premieres, 11 other titles, some other good things at uh, tour finals. Then you got Azarenka, Halep, Capriot. I mean, you're into like pretty obvious territory, I think, I think after that. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the tough things for me thinking about the Tennis Hall of Fame is, is partly because we've been living through the Big Four era for so long, we've gotten accustomed to there being just a handful of players at the top of the game. So when you talk about tennis greats, right now you're talking about the Big Four on the men's side, and then on the women's side you've got Serena and I'm not sure if there's anyone who's an who's an unquestioned great. I mean, you're you're pointing out Kerber is automatically in by the Hall's criteria, but I don't think people would look at Kerber and say she's one of the towering figures of tennis. At any given time, you've got some good players, but so we've got these two extremes. Where in both cases we have few greats, but on one side it's because a few players are winning everything. On the other side, it's because the wins are being spread out so much, at least when, when Serena hasn't won them. And I'm wondering, like, with, with baseball, I don't know what the average number of active Hall of Famers is at any time, but it's a lot. Like, at, at any given time, you can figure there's, what, a few dozen Hall of Famers out there? Maybe yeah. more? But yeah. So you, don't ha- you might not even be um, on the All-Star team some years, and you're going to be in the Hall of Fame someday. I mean, if you put together a good enough 20-year career. But in tennis, if you go down to the... 20th best active player so let's say the 10th best active career on the men's side or the 10th best on the women's side then you're digging pretty deep and I don't think those players are in the tennis hall of fame I mean because the there's a smaller total number just that the sports are so different but it does mean that it's it's tough to imagine who the hall of famers are going to be from this group so you mentioned in I think it was in your championship shares post about the men is you focused on David Ferrer so out of this era, or the, I'm not sure how we're defining generations, but the one immediately preceding this one, you obviously have the big four at the top. And then, I mean, Ferrer's number five, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and, and this, is, this is a good point, is that if, if you really are going to confine the Tennis Hall of Fame to Federer, Sampras, Nadal, McEnroe, that level of talent, it's gonna, you don't need a building that's very big. Because <laughs> there just are, there aren't that many. In fact, you'd be shocked if you and I, and I don't know the number. You may, but if you just go back and look at how many men have been number one since there's, since we've had the ranking system, it isn't really that many. Yeah, it's a couple dozen, I think. Yeah, it's it. You can't go too deep on that. And then you have all, a lot of, especially in an era where, like you said, the women now, uh, where it's w- more wide open, who could win any championship, uh, you know. And I think so. Some of that, I think, requires a little bit of a different kind of thinking with the Tennis Hall of Fame. I don't think it's it's like uh, 
baseball or football where you kind of just know them when you see them. I mean, maybe you do, but it's it's a very, very exclusive club at that point. I mean, even more exclusive than the other clubs. Uh, and I, I don't know if that really works in terms of, you know, maintaining the popularity or interest in, in the Hall of Fame. So to me, it's more important that you look at sort of comps, who else is already in or who else did we think of that was a Hall of Famer and, and is the person under consideration uh, close to that. Um, of course, I, I mean, Venus is going to be in. She's a current player. Uh, and uh, Maria Sharapova is going to be in. I mean, she's got, what, five slams, a bunch of titles, obviously very popular player, number one. Uh, and after those active players, then I then you're into the the group that you're talking about, the Kvitova, Halep, Azarenka, Kerber, Wozniacki group. Yeah, and it, it could be that this is all just removed as an issue because maybe the group of, of younger players coming up right now are we're going to have another group of, I don't know, five slam winners. So maybe Sabalenka, Yastrzemska, Andreescu, maybe, maybe they'll pick that up and then we'll just have this gap in the middle. So someday people having the, a podcast 10 or 15 years from now will be debating whether... Muguruza was good enough to meet the threshold, or maybe the fans shouldn't have voted so overwhelmingly for Osaka, or, or who knows, maybe Osaka will be one of those stars. She very well could be. But um, but yeah, a lot of this depends on on how the how the next generation shapes up. But for the men, I think it's 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 definitely going to be a pertinent concern that I guess there's no law, certainly there's no law in the Tennis Hall of Fame books that you need to have a consistent number of players from every generation. But Beyond the big four, it, I, I, it sounded like from your blog post that you had stronger feelings on Ferrer than it, it just did um, when you were talking a minute ago. Like, do you think Ferrer should be a tennis Hall of Famer? I, I think it's a hard it's a hard one to sell. You've got no Grand Slam, and you have uh, no number one. He peaked at what three? Uh, that's you know, and I, I don't think and and you only have one Grand Slam final. Uh, yeah, so, that's a strike. Yeah, that, that's a strike. Uh, you know, a better choice uh, and uh, for someone who did not reach number one and wouldn't meet the uh, automatic criteria is Vavrinka. Uh, yeah, well, and, and he falls into this, a similar category to uh, to Lina, right? Like, he, he's got two slams, so in the so in two very... three. Does he have three? He probably has three. I... So he has he has the thing that fans care about the most in, in the slams, and it's the rest of his resume that's lacking. And it partly held him back from from climbing higher in the rankings or staying there for for as long. Uh, but yeah, I guess that that's that's true. That if if you want to think in terms of who will get in, if you're putting money on it or if you're making a bet for what, who's going to be in the Hall of Fame ten years from now, then yeah, I think Bob Rink is a much safer bet than Ferrer. But I think maybe where you talked about Ferrer was. Um, your your posts on transformed wins and this is this is a very different approach to measuring career greatness than championship shares because championship shares is essentially just weighting uh slam wins slam finals premier masters titles and then other titles and then transformed wins is is just looking at at match wins and 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 opponent quality right yeah so you know you could as I said in the, the post about this, there's always been a complaint about Ferrer that he was, quote, vulturing wins by playing small tournaments. And, you know, if you play small tournaments and you beat good players, those wins are just as good as any other win. If you 
play a small tournament and you beat a bunch of guys who otherwise would be in challengers, then maybe you shouldn't get as much credit. So the, the transformed wins was designed to give more credit to top wins and less credit to lesser wins uh, and add all those up and, and sort of come up with another number that represents, you know, like transformed wins, not how many wins you actually had, but how many wins it really should count. And, and you know, the contrast, Ferrer is a great contrast on that because uh, he's number 17 all time in the open era to the extent we can count. There's a lot of caveats with this, as I mentioned in the, the blog post with respect to uh, the, the, the wins that we have for some of the older players uh, and who they won against. Uh, so we had, I had to sort of do some gap filling there. But uh, assuming that, Ferrer's 17th on the twins list, on the transfer wins list. He is, I believe, let me see, 58th on championship shares. <laughs> that is a big difference. Championship shares, his, uh, the people surrounding him are uh, Johan Creek, uh, Carlos Moya, uh, Goran Ivanisevic, who's a very popular player, and uh, Michael Stieck, who got in last year. And Transform- is Moya not in? Uh, I don't think Moya's in. I don't know. Apologies for the clicking, but... Um... I don't think he's in. He's got one Grand Slam, and he's okay, got... Okay, well, the, the first Google result is, why is Carlos Moya not in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. So go. I'm going to assume that means he's not, at least as of October 2017. Uh, and that's now, an interesting case. Like, I, 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 not to navel-gaze too much, but you, you get this sense from just following tennis of who the great ones are, and in, in eras like Moya's, which maybe is somewhat analogous to what the WTA is right now, then you've got players who, who stick out as greats when maybe they aren't. Like, maybe we're... We're giving Wozniacki too much credit, or maybe we're giving Halep too much credit. I mean, I personally think we couldn't possibly give Halep enough credit, but maybe, <laughs> maybe analytically speaking, Halep's getting too many points for for lucking into being born when she was. And I think of Moya as not a towering figure of his time, but a, one of the top players around at least for a few years. Um, and, well, let, and let, yeah, let me correct. Metrics, he, let me correct something belong. real quick too, also because I, I I was reading you one Carlos Ferrero's number. Uh, the sur- so, sur- so really, sur- a really distinctive guy too. <laughs> yeah, Moya is is up there. Uh, the, around Ferrer are are someone named Bill Bowery, Marcelo Rios, uh, our current uh, Alexander Zverev, and now Bandian. Moya is up there with Ivan Isevich, Del Potro, and Chilich. So I, I I know I interrupted you, but I didn't want us to get too far down the road before I corrected that. <laughs> that's a significant difference. Uh, Moya is 39th on the championship shares list and, and Ferrer's 58th. Anyway, sorry. Okay. That. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. I mean, it, it, I think some of the same arguments apply to Ferrero too, and his stats aren't quite as good, but, uh, but he, he was, he was one of those guys who was like a threat for slams on multiple surfaces for at least sure. a few years. Uh, he might have been the first victim of the Federer Big Four era. I mean, he did, I think all of his good results came as Federer was turning into the Roger Federer, and he basically had none after that. So you know, we won't know what would have happened otherwise, but um, but he might have been unlucky in being... I think he's a, a couple of years younger than Carlos Moya, so maybe their, their results would have flip-flopped had the, the birth years been different. Well, he, he kind of has uh, the, the Leighton Hewitt appeal... Uh, of the, you know, I think we've talked about this before where people think he's not as talented because he doesn't have the, as such obvious physical gifts and he was just seen as a, a workhorse. Uh, he's ahead of Hewitt on 
on transformed wins. Of course, he's behind him on championship shares because Hewitt had a, uh, some slam results. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard to find a contrast, as big a contrast between his championship shares number 58, 58th all time, and his uh, transformed wins at 18. I mean, that it's like, what do you do with that? Um, and I, sometimes you have to fall back on, on some qualitative measures, but uh, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he got in, and it certainly wouldn't bother me if he did, but I do think there would be some uproar about that. Uh, I, I've seen things on Twitter that suggested that no one should even, his name shouldn't even come up at the in the board discussions, <laughs> you know, as, a, as if he shouldn't be on the ballot somehow, which is it's sort of why I wrote the post in the first place, not to get him into the Hall of Fame, but to just recognize, look, it's it's okay to appreciate someone who is that good uh, and to put him on the ballot and, and see where it falls. Uh, be interesting to see where it falls if it was a fan vote. Yeah, um, and it, I want to go back to the fan vote a, li- a little bit because you made you made a good point about the how the various Hall of Fames in sports and music, and I mean now there's all sorts of touristy Hall of Fames for other things as well. But the the idea of a sports Hall of Fame has been, I think, pretty consistent across different sports. And like I think both of us know the most about the the baseball Hall of Fame and the way the way that has developed. I mean, I think it's that that set the tradition that the other sports followed, and you have. You have sort of a, a dual purpose of the honor and the building. So you mentioned earlier, are you are you going to are you going to go for something that's consistent and really honoring a certain type of greatness, or are you going to go the rock and roll route and and just go for publicity? And I think the baseball has always struck that balance pretty well. I mean, if if you want to have your plaque in the Hall of Greats at the Hall of Fame, I'm sure that has a name that's not that, but. Uh, then, then you've got to you've got to do certain things. You have to you have to have a certain type of career. Um, preferably, you would do it without illegal drugs. But I think we all have a we all have a pretty good understanding of how you get how you get a plaque in that room. But that doesn't mean if you don't get a plaque in that room, you can still you're still a part of baseball history, which is celebrated by the museum. I mean, Roger Maris is really was never really a contender for the Hall of Fame, but he hit 61 home runs back at a time when that really mattered and. I mean, his bat or his ball or his jersey or maybe all three are are in the Hall of Fame to commemorate that time. I mean, Eddie Geidel, who had one career plate appearance for the <laughs> and was the shortest player of all time, I think his jersey's in the Hall of Fame. I mean, yeah. Scooter Gannett, who had a surprise uh, cycle a few years ago, they sent his stuff to the Hall of Fame. Like, y- you don't have to be great to be commemorated by the building and to have millions of of ten year old fans come and and you know and gawk at the exhibitions with their dads. Uh, but, you know, you can't be the shortest player of all time and thus get a plaque or hit 61 home runs just one year and get a plaque. And and I think there's some parallels. Like, the Isner-Mahu match means that like John Isner and Nicholas Mahu will always have a place in the building in Newport. But I think it's, unless Mahu goes on to win the next 15 doubles Grand Slams, I don't think he's ever going to have a plaque. Um same same thing with Isner. There's a lot of cases like that in history, um, and it's I haven't been to the building, so I don't know how how broad a, a brush the, the actual museum uses to to capture all of tennis history. But um, I mean, it seems like the goal should be as long as you have the building to honor these other players who are historical but not great. I mean, you really should should focus on greatness. It's really just the question of of how you define that. Uh, 
And you're highlighting the, the contrast between the transformed wins and, and championship shares and Ferreira being really tough. Some other players, maybe also Ferreira, who, who's tough. Given how much everybody cares about the slams, I mean, should it basically be about championship shares or some, some version that uses those same inputs? I would probably weight that more heavily than just accumulating wins. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want them to use just the bare win total. I think it matters who you beat uh, if you're talking about a Hall of Fame discussion. But uh, I, I think the yeah, I, I think the slams uh, do matter more. I, I do think it's perfectly okay to have um, other contributions uh, that not only are a factor, but maybe the, the tipping factor. I often in other sports those are acknowledged as sort of a different group um not necessarily in the so-called hall of greats but uh contributors or whatever i think contributors in tennis probably means more like you know the tennis writers or something but um you know so like the intangibles that that lena brought uh were uh i I mean again I, i don't really have a problem with her being there but i don't know that her tennis record alone is what you See, sometimes I, I, what I do is I envision what her plaque would say. Because, you know, the plaque, there's, there, at all the Hall of Fames, there's not much room for writing, right? So it just really has to hit, like, the big stuff. And so, you know, for somebody like Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, or, you know, John McEnroe, or Roger Federer, they're, they're going to have a, there's going to be have to, there's going to be some serious editing yeah, they're going to have to switch font sizes for those guys. <laughs> right, it's going to be like two-point font. And you say, view through this magnifying glass for Roger <laughs> Federer's accomplishments. Lee Na, I got a feeling that, you know, when I was I was listening to them talk about her and when I was reading the, the description on the website, this, it just felt a bit like a stretch. Uh, so, uh, but again, I mean, you know, that doesn't mean that she shouldn't be in for other contributions. But I, I do have some, yeah, I, I think you do have to decide how big your hall is going to be and yeah of course there are a lot more baseball players contributing at any given time than there are tennis players contributing at any given given time so the baseball hall is going to be much bigger but you know if you look at championship shares here you get down to number 25 you're basically at Vavrinka. but 25 is not you know if i walk in if i go to the tennis hall of fame and i'm looking at the i don't know if they mix the men in the women's section i can't remember um but if i'm looking at at the men and there are only 25 plaques I, I i just don't know if that's enough i mean it is enough in the sense that well these are the people who were the champions but it's kind of a short experience you know it's a short tour yeah uh, and, and that makes you wonder if it, it, you're pointing out obviously Lee Na got in largely because she was an asian tennis pioneer you wonder if 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 that's who fills it out because if if Let's say, yeah, you're saying maybe there's 50 plaques. I think there's more inductees than that because the um, there have been more players from previous eras sure. inducted, and it's that's not right. just the op- it's not just the open era. So that's a that's a whole different can of worms that I don't think we can get into. But um, if if you want to if you want to have a bigger hall, it, it, you're right. It, it seems weird to just take the next 10 or next 20 on the championship shares list because then you do get into some kind of murky territory and some players who don't really feel like Hall of Famers. And maybe if, if you are going to expand the Hall, then you want players who are pioneers or who, um, I mean, maybe someone who introduced a shot and made it work for the first time. Um, I don't, so, I, I'm are not, you saying, are you saying Kyrgios is going to be in the Hall of Fame? 
for that underarm thing. <laughs> well, that, that would that would be a fun argument to have in ten years because we <laughs> certainly won't be sick of tire, sick and tired of talking about curios then. Um, but the, in all seriousness, you're you're right to bring up underarm serve. The name that came up to me was Mansoor Barami. Like if you if you want an innovator in the hall or someone who's who's really meaningful to a lot of fans, then Barami moves way up the list. Uh, I mean, do you do you take someone who's won a bunch of mixed doubles titles? Because I think some of the people who came up on my list of the all-time greats in mixed doubles uh, aren't already in the hall. Um, it, who I can't think of the name, but the the guy who won most of the titles alongside Billie Jean King, uh, maybe it was Owen Davidson. Is that his name? As, mm, I'm not strong right. with this. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not sure if he's in. I'm not sure what his what his non mixed doubles accomplishments are. But do you do you put him in instead of someone like? Like Ferrer or or I don't know Mukarutso when the time comes, uh, it's it, it's a it's difficult because I don't think anybody's ever really decided what constitutes tennis greatness. Uh, I mean, it, it's all about the slams, and there's so few people who really hit who really check all the boxes for greatness. That yeah, if you want to have more than fifty plaques in the room, then it's not clear what direction you're expanding in. And I think going back to your point uh, with with baseball, at least internally, they've always had. I mean, the fans kind of know, but the fans know because the Hall of Fame accepted veterans committee uh, decisions, uh, which are sometimes political. Uh, the internally, they kind of knew what their criteria were. Uh, they had a pretty good sense of what got you anyway. I'm not 100% sure that the the Tennis Hall of Fame board knows what the criteria are. I think they've got the nominees. And then they all meet and talk about them, <laughs> you know. And then yeah. and there's definitely some pressure to uh, elect someone because it is possible that in any given year that there is no one who deserves to be in that isn't already in uh, while we're waiting for the retirements of all these other great players. And then you're going to have a glut. Uh, and God forbid you end up on the ballot with Serena and Roger. <laughs> I yeah. mean – I, I, I mean, because even if you're deserving, I mean, you know, you're A, B, the, well, I got Serena on my left hand. Now let's look at the other person's account. Oh, wait a second. What are they, why are we even talking about this person? Uh, but there is some pressure to elect someone every year. Last year, I think there was only one uh, nominee on the women's side, uh, Helena Sukova, who was elected. And I don't think she was elected solely because of pressure. I, I, her singles uh, record, maybe not Hall of Fame worthy, but she's lights out on doubles so uh, it's uh, to me not a not a difficult call there uh, but it, it's it's strange to just have one nominee but i don't know that even if she didn't have that doubles resume whether they would have just said no i mean are they going to have a hall of fame ceremony and deal with twitter uh with uh the two male inductees with no female inductees uh, hmm. you know <laughs> i can see yeah. how that would play in the boardroom that would uh, that does seem to be getting increasingly tricky. Uh, but I, I, when we first started talking about these issues, uh, I, I did look and was surprised that there have been some years with no inductees and a, a number of years with just one, uh, male or female. And it seems like maybe this is changing because I'm sure the Tennis Hall of Fame realizes that the more inclusive they are or the 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 more fans they can get interested in any given year's ceremony, the, the better for the institution but they have tended to lean towards a small hall kind of decision that like i said there have been a lot of years with just the one uh, and yeah that could be very tricky when you've got 
when you've got the big four retiring at similar times and Serena and Venus. I mean, I'm assuming that in 10 years, Venus will not still be competing in the second week of slams. But <laughs> they, they might stick around so long you'll have some younger players who are who are competing for that too. Uh, I, I did want to... Since we, you mentioned Sukova and her doubles resume making making her a pretty clear clear choice, how much do you think? Uh, there's kind of two questions at once I want to ask you. Is one, how much do you think doubles should factor into a player's decision? And second, how 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 big a percentage of the total pool should be double specialists? Because there aren't very many. Like there's more the further back you go, but. We have the Woodies who are in. I'm assuming the Bryan brothers will go in as, as soon as sure. possible unless right. they, they hit the ballot the same year as Roger and Serena. But uh, but that's not a lot. And there aren't a lot of other figures who who really come to mind. Like Daniel Nestor seems like one. Leander Pays, if he ever retires, uh, <laughs> is another one. Maybe, I guess Martina Hingis is in anyway. She, her doubles resume would have done it for her. But it, it takes a lot more to really to really hit the the public awareness as a doubles star or a doubles great. So, I mean, how how big a weight should that be? Well, so, you know, one of the reasons that it's harder to get uh, a doubles player in, even if you had fan voting, I think, is that it's just not on TV enough. Uh, and and so it's uh, the Bryan brothers are the Bryan brothers. Uh, but a lot of the other great doubles players who were singles players, you got to see on TV anyway. Uh, I mean, McEnroe and Fleming and Navratilova and, uh, and I don't know how many partners she had and <laughs> doubles is uh, a ridiculous number. Uh, but, you know, people who would have been in it anyway. But, but I mean, does the general public know who Daniel Nestor is? Uh, and, and so I think in, internally you have to decide, are we really just electing people who everybody would want to see or is there a component of this in which we say look maybe these are the people you should have paid attention to uh and now that you're here at the hall we want you to know that you know daniel Nestor did what he did and he did it until he was i guess i guess he's just retired right uh so yeah i think i think he announced but was he 43 44 maybe 44, yeah, yeah yeah quite but, old it goes back to something you said earlier, where you you said you didn't think Mahu would get in. Uh, I think Mahu is a, a pretty interesting uh, case because he and and Air Bear with him because they were a team for all of them. I mean, he does have all four slams. I mean, I, I mean, if you did that on the men's side, on the single side, I mean, pff, slam dunk, right? You do that on the double side, and we're like, ah, oh, he's Nicholas Mahu. He played the longest match. Uh, so. I, I, to me, if I were on the Hall of Fame, I would give, and I'm, I, I will admit, I'm not a huge fan of watching doubles, uh, but I do think it is an important part of the game, of the sport, and I, I do think that people who play tennis play doubles. You guys have talked about this many times on the show, and that they can really relate, to, and, and I know a lot of people that I play with that when they go to a tournament, they want to watch doubles live. They would rather do that than pay for the stadium ticket to watch one of the big boys, big, uh, you know, or big stars on the WTA tour. So I think from an, it's sort of an integrity, internal tennis integrity standpoint, I mean, you're promoting tennis generally. You've got to have uh, a truly representative uh, group of doubles grades in the hall. I, I can see the argument from a who on, on the basis of holding all four slams. Uh, and Air Bear is probably not done. 
Yeah, <laughs> you know? definitely not. I mean, and, and I, I've pointed this out a few times, but mostly we think of the, the current stock of doubles players as being considerably older. Lots of them have peaked very late. And of course, people like Nestor and Robert Lindstedt are... And I think Lindsay is in his 40s as well. The Bryans, like it's a very old group. But then you have these this handful of players who are really, really good and could be 10, 15 years away from retiring. And Herbert is one. Um, Henry Continent is another one. I think his partner John Pierce, if they're still playing together, he's in his 20s. And I mean Jack Sock. There's a conversation for another day. But <laughs> Jack Sock might be the best doubles player on earth right now. And I mean, if if he decided to care about doubles, he could win 20 double slams. Uh, crazy as that is to think about um so is is the solution here to to have like i always joke on the show that we have this this five minute doubles ghetto at the that once we hit the 55 minute mark we're, we're winding things down <laughs> now now we're gonna jam all the doubles there is into into five minutes at the end of the show i mean is that the solution for the hall of fame i mean it seems like the the baseball hall of fame has these these various subsets of of figures who aren't the stars. I mean, if, if, if you're the sort of person who wants to go to Cooperstown and see an induction ceremony at the place where baseball was not invented, then <laughs> you're going for, you know, because Andre Dawson was your boyhood hero, or did, whoever the, the current players are who are getting in, um, that's who you're excited about. You're not, you're not excited about the, the 1930s team owner who innovated something or <laughs> right. whose, whose great-granddaughter is a really good lobbyist or something. But, but those people are getting in. They're, they're part of the show, and their plaques will be in the same room as the, the other players will be, maybe in a darker corner, but they'll be in the same room. And you're right that if, if you're tuning in to this inauguration ceremony and you see Daniel Nestor, then, then sure, like guys like you and me and Carl will be excited about that and understand Nestor's greatness, but a lot of people who tuned in for the, the inevitable Isner final in a couple of years, they're, they might not even know who that is. So is the solution to to only do that as a maybe the third player to get in so you've got an you've got a, a group of Roger Serena and Leander Pays in in 5 years well i i do think you know i mean i guess that that entails taking into account what the public wants and 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 i do realize that from a commercial standpoint that they need to do that i i think that i don't know how many doubles players should be in. I, I haven't looked at it. I haven't spent enough time thinking about it. I do think that you have to elect them despite popularity uh, as part of sort of the integrity and the history of the sport. And if people want to walk by their plaques without looking at Nicholas Mahu's plaque um, for whatever reason, uh, that's fine. And maybe 90% of the people do that. But maybe the other 10% uh, either already knew about him, remember him, he was a good guy whatever like to read about him or maybe they didn't know about him but they stopped and read his plaque anyway because they're reading all the plaques and they learned something they didn't know before and they go oh you know i remember mahu from that isner match but i didn't realize he won all four grand slams i mean that's that's something i mean that's not an accident <laughs> yeah and that, right? that's a that's a really good point is we're thinking about the the appeal issues as like the way I just framed it, if you if you tune in for the inauguration, who's going to capture your interest, or who's who's going to make you make the pilgrimage to to Newport? Um, but but that's a good way of thinking about it. That that the fact that and, and what I'm about to say, people will disagree with this. But um, the 
if you do let somebody in who maybe doesn't meet your personal standards or isn't someone you'd heard of, if their plaque is in the room, that doesn't lessen somebody else's plaque. I mean, yeah. I guess... I guess people think that's what happens when you let Harold Baines into the Baseball Hall of Fame, that if Harold Baines is a Baseball Hall of Famer, then all of a sudden the honor isn't worth as much. And maybe there's something to that. But I think the the more the accomplishments we're talking about are different, like in, in the case of Mahu's doubles prowess as an example, like letting in more doubles players doesn't make the the Hall of Fame any less of an honor for Mary Pierce or Lee Nah. It's... It's just a different sort of thing. Just like if you if you honored more writers or more uh, more tournament directors or something, uh, and that, that I think that's that's a really good point. I mean, do you think that I mean one of the baseball debates is always the big hall versus small hall? I mean, do you lean one way or other uh, on that one? I generally I would lean uh, small, uh, just to maintain a a certain a certain standard so that a Hall of Fame really means something it doesn't mean hall of the the very good which there's certainly no shame in that uh i don't really get upset about most uh, hall of fame elections i I consider most of them to be travesties i don't think you mentioned harold baines in baseball that wasn't a a very good selection uh and it was a bit of a strange one uh but he was a very good player uh and and so you know Again, you read his plaque and you're like, eh, you know, what what got him here? Uh, but yeah, I think smaller is generally better for the integrity process. Also, I think you want to rein in the people who have the the true votes. I don't mean the fans, but on the board, uh, you know, because everybody has their favorites. And I mean, I would put Davey Lopes in the Hall of Fame. I loved him when I was a kid. He was a second baseman for the Dodgers, not a Hall of Famer. Uh, but I'd have a, have a hard time voting no for him if I were on the board. I, I like having some constraints on it, uh, and and it, it doesn't have to be rigid criteria. But I think that everybody has to kind of be on the same page uh, in in terms of the criteria that they're using. They might have a different uh, evaluation of whether qualitatively someone meets the criteria, and that's that's certainly open for debate. And there's certainly nothing wrong with. I mean, I will say this that. Choosing borderline candidates is interesting in and of itself. It does generate a lot of talk about the Hall. I mean, if you've forgotten to think about the Hall of Fame for a while and Harold Baines gets in, then Twitter blows up. <laughs> so Yeah, and, and, and that's that's a good point. I've been, I, I've been thinking I should bring that up as well, is it, one of the things that, I think we talked about this um, with the last time I had you on the show, is I think both of us, a lot of our baseball and analytical efforts stemmed from the Baseball Hall of Fame. I mean, Bill James wrote a whole book about it. Um, a huge, huge amount of analytical baseball work has gone into quantifying who should go in the Hall of Fame or who shouldn't. I mean, if if and if any of you were interested in like peak baseball stats nerdiness, check out the Baseball Think Factory Hall of Merit, which which. Uh, Jeff has been involved with, right? Yeah. You've contributed to that. And that's, as far as I know, that's the most, um, I don't even know what word to pick for what it's the most of, but it's extremely (laughs) in-depth. You've got a lot of really smart, very thorough people um, analyzing players who, I mean, players who often you would never have heard of, like figuring out how to weight a a player from the turn of the the 20th century, like Bill Dolan against, uh, against players from today. Uh, I mean, it's it's really impressive work. It's also extremely niche, 
But it's not just that. I mean, there's so many metrics that have been designed. So many people are familiar with what, what Bill James has done to, to quantify what the Hall of Fame thresholds are. I mean, if you go to baseballreference.com, every player has their, um, their black ink numbers and their similarity scores, which are going are gonna to surface some other Hall of Famers if, if that's who they're similar with. So, I mean, it, we always come up against this point that there just aren't that many people doing, doing analytical tennis work, at least at, at least persistently over very much time but this is one of the areas where they could like this is the sort of thing that really gets you riled up and thinking i know that carlos moya deserves to be in the hall of fame let me now spend the next six months of my life working with the database and then writing ten thousand words about why i mean that's that's a thing baseball fans do but it it, it maybe that will be what drives uh, another wave of, of analytical interest in tennis yeah it's i think it all the whatever sport you're in uh there are some people, and near one of them, who might just sit down and think, "Well, I, I just want to like, you know, figure all this stuff out. I want to figure out whether what they say every time on TV is actually true or is it not true." I mean, every time I hear a commentator say that the seventh game is the most important game, right? That's a trigger for you. Um, that's not going to be true for most people. Well, we would just have to accept that. Um, but there are things that you care about, uh, in in just your everyday, even water cooler debates, that you can apply analytics to. Uh, and there's nothing that will get you into it. And, you know, a lot of people I think are scared of it or they think there's like too much math, even though most of the math is like addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication. Uh, but they think there's too much math or I don't know how to get into it. The real, really, there's no way to get into it except to find something you're interested in and figure it out. I mean, you're not going to get a, in baseball, you can probably do this now because I know a lot of statistics courses at colleges are taught with baseball's statistics as a, a base because the data set is so rich. Uh, but you're probably not going to take a course on, on tennis analytics. But if you want to figure something out, you can read around, you figure it out, you make some mistakes. I mean, do what I do basically all the time. <laughs> and, uh, and and you can learn some things. And a Hall of Fame is a great way, a great entry to that. If you think that an acting Lee Nas a travesty or that you are so angry because Thomas Mooster hasn't been elected yet, because uh, he was number one, right? He had number one. Yeah. Yeah. He has one slam. So in another like interesting case. Uh, the Austrians it, are furious about that. I mean, do, you should, shouldn't even bring that up if you go to Vienna. <laughs> okay. I, was, I can note that. I need to write that down in my, my travel book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, so so if, if you think you should be, and you know, I mean, try to do it objectively, I think. I, I Obviously, you can... You can probably make a case for anyone who's a close call, but you know, well, one thing I wanted to say about uh, about the uh, Hall of Fame too, um, and, and I wrote a little bit about this, and this is getting a little bit away from the the, the numbers part, but uh, you know, it does need to be an important part of the tennis landscape, and this kind of goes back to the, you know, it's got you got to have enough people in there that people want to actually see otherwise it's it's not a it's it's not an enticing attraction uh but i don't know if it's an enticing attraction right now and i've written a little bit about this i don't want to get into this on the uh, on the show about how golf has done such a better job of making its hall of fame like a true destination i mean cooperstown if you've ever been baseball's hall of fame is the most it may be somewhat fakeified or disneyfied or something but it it's the most like idyllic new england town right and the baseball hall of fame's right in i mean it's just everything about it it's it's a destination and 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 newport really isn't i mean newport's a nice place to be i 
I think Newport's a really cool place to visit. But you know, you don't you don't go to Newport most of the time for the Hall of Fame. And I'd like to see that be more prominent. But the reason I bring this up now is because I, I did watch the Hall of Fame speeches this weekend. And and tennis has something that these other sports that we've been talking about, and they're probably Hall of Fames in, in other countries that we haven't uh, talked about and don't know about. But we have an international sport. And I found it very awkward listening to the speeches, especially from Lina and Yevgeny Kafelnikov, because we're asking them uh, and maybe Lina is a good example again. We're asking them to, to give a speech in, in a language that isn't their native language. Um, and uh, Lina may have been elected primarily because of her pull uh, in the Asian community, yet we make her stand up there and speak broken English for 15 minutes. I'd rather have her speak in her native language and, and have an interpreter so that they feel more free to... Yeah, one of the cool things about Hall of Fame induction ceremonies is hearing like the little details or the funny things that the stories they tell. But if it's all in an uncomfortable language for them, it, it really doesn't come across. All the speeches were really strange this year. Um, Mary Pierce's was borderline depressing in the first half, uh, in which she came right to the brink of telling us everything that was terrible about the way her father brought her up in tennis and then she said but I don't want to talk about that even though she took us right to the edge and, yeah. then, it, and then it turned into a, a, a Christian thing but Lina and Kafelnikov really struggled he tried to tell stories that were really five or six words long that didn't go anywhere but I, I can't I think that's the language barrier I would like to see it's going to be a if it's an international sport let's have it not be so I don't know Americanized just because we decided yeah. to stick the Hall of Fame in Newport yeah, that's a really good point, and it's only the, in one regard, it's only be going to become more of an issue that, like you point out, Lina is, she's in partly because she's a pioneer, but there's going to be more Chinese tennis hall of famers. We can be pretty sure about that, and I, I guess it, it might move in the other direction because tennis is such an international sport, and and conversations with umpires and, and interviewers are so often conducted in English that most players these days, if they do have a, a long tennis career. Um, they're going to be at, at at least at that level, often much better in English. I'm shocked with some of the the teenagers from from Eastern Europe who, like, they're not fluent exactly, but somehow they manage to become world class tennis players and buy or trilingual by the time they're 19. I mean, that's just unbelievable to me. But um, since we are kind of t- running out the clock here, um, one one thought based on one of your comments and then one last question I want to raise. The, the, the thought is, you mentioned that this is a good entry point for a lot of would-be analysts or maybe even people who don't think of themselves as would-be analysts. And I think it's it's it, what you'll see a lot on, on Twitter, on message boards like Reddit, stuff like that. A lot of people who aren't that into analytics, they will get really into analytics one day when they think they have some idea to apply to the GOAT debate or just the Federer versus Nadal debate or something. And it's really funny to hear people who will say, you know, I hate analytics, but you have, I hate analytics. All you need to know is Roger has more slams than Rafa does. It's like, I hate analytics except for the number I care about, (laughs) which is like the the generations of of baseball guys who'd say like, this this analytics stuff is garbage. I just need a guy who can hit a hundred RBIs a year. Well, what's, what's a hundred RBIs? Like why, why is that the number that's not analytics? And then some other number is analytics. So I, mean, I think it, it's all a continuum. I mean, you, you can't 
you can't be a sports fan and not have some interest in the numbers. It's virtually impossible. Um, it's just a matter of which numbers you pick. And I think if you do get into a debate, whether it's Roger versus Rafa or Moya in versus Moya out, like you start with the simple numbers, but when when you start dealing with objections and thinking about it more deeply, you do get to more more interesting numbers and comparisons and all that. But one thing, this was on my original list of things I wanted to dig into. We're not going to be able to go too deep here. But um, another thing that's really common in Baseball Hall of Fame debates is the, the notion of, of career value versus peak value. So you've got these guys who, two recent baseball examples, I keep mentioning Harold Baines, who was a, a very good hitter for a long time. Uh, but never had any really great years, um, certainly never an MVP contention. Another guy is Jack Morris, um, who got his way to 300 wins as a pitcher. Did he make it to 300 wins? I don't remember. Uh, but he he was never he was never great. He got a lot of run support. He, he his The stats people look at um, are probably kind of inflated. But point being, you have these guys who were never great at any given time, but because they stuck around for a long time, their career stats look good. I mean, it's tough to do that in tennis. I mean, maybe Ferrer's a good example. He only got the one slam final, but he has a lot of titles because he won so many clay 250s. Um, maybe maybe he's the, the example of someone with really high career value and, and low peak value. And maybe maybe the gap between transformed wins and championship shares is a good way to capture that. Um, but it, it, do you have a, do you think that applies to tennis at all? I mean, it, it seems like you're more likely in tennis to have someone with a really high peak value. And if you have a peak value, the career value doesn't really matter. I mean, if, if Osaka wins the U.S. Open and the Australian Open again and then fades out and retires at age 24, then I mean, she's in. That's done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, so it, is that worth considering here? I mean, or is it just really, is it basically just a peak value kind of sport? I think it. I think it's worth considering. I mean, you know, again, I, I mean, Ferrer. If without the, without any championships, I, I don't know that your career value is going to ever get, get you into the Hall of Fame. But I think, uh, I mean, Lee Nas really, even though she played on the tour for quite a long time, she really did everything that she did in a burst, right? It was in a pretty short period of time. Um, she wasn't much before that. I mean, she was a good player, obviously, but, and then all of a sudden, bam, 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 then all of a sudden, she's retired. Uh, and, you know, I mean, then you got Venus, who, you know, her peak would be outstanding at the beginning, but she's got, like, peak and career, right? Because, I mean, even though she didn't do tremendously great things in the back of her career, she's still winning matches, she's still a threat uh, at certain It's, what, two years since her last slam semi? Yeah. And that's really but, impressive. But, right, <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, and and then you've got people who have popped in and out. You've got uh, I don't know if uh, I haven't looked. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but Henan maybe Henan seems to me like a uh, you know all happened in a burst. Um, and then to me Davenport a little bit longer. Yeah, you know. So I think it's worth looking at. I haven't run the numbers yet. I think you have to decide what you want to use as a, a peak value that baseball has a what's come to be the system that's used. A, Jaws, which measures a, a peak versus career and measures them together. But I used to uh, look at three-year peaks, five-year peaks, seven-year peaks, and then the whole career and just kind of compare them individually, um, th- th- those categories individually to see how they they stack up. I think, you know, if you have a, a big three-year burst and then nothing after that, 
I mean, it's just just part of the debate. Uh, I don't think any of these things uh, solve the the question, and I think there should always be debate in those scenarios. And we may we may have that debate about uh, Muguruza. I mean, yeah, she's lining up to be a, a, right on the border or right on the. Uh... What's the word people use in, in baseball for the the borderline picks? There's a there's a common word for it. it doesn't really matter, but but yeah, she's she's gonna be a tough call. Yeah, she's gonna be tough and and on the I, bubble. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, well, she you know she's on not only is she on the bubble, but there's a there's a public perception of her that that the wins were kind of an accident. I mean, what if Ostapenko wins another one, right? Ostapenko yeah. wins another one. She went from whatever she was to number five, and then back to probably where she should be but it doesn't mean that she can't get hot in a tournament and win it again and bounce to five and then bounce back out but i don't know if people think ostapenko is a hall of famer yeah um, well and yeah to, to, to your point she made the wimbledon semis last year was it i mean she's she came within two matches of um of having a, a french open and a wimbledon title and even after that i think it would be tough to see her as a hall of famer right uh you know and i mean people are People are going to complain about. I don't think Kvitova. She never hit number one, right? She's got a couple slams, but, um, but never hit number one. I think she peaked at two. Yeah. Um, but so did I think. I don't think. I don't know if Moresmo ever got to one. She's got two, Grand Slam wins and probably a similar ranking. And you know, I, I mean, is I she think, in? I think I thought Moresmo got in. Let me. That sounds right. I mean, and that would be another interesting case because her partnership with Andy Murray feels like the sort of thing that would push her over the edge. Uh, that would be historic or pioneering enough or just notable and fan-friendly enough to, to give her a few extra points. Yes, uh, uh, Amelie is in. She went in with, okay. she went in with uh, Justine Hennen. Okay. Um, anyway, that's a good contrast right there. Seven times Grand Slam versus one. I mean, you know, it must be interesting to give that speech if you're Amelie. I guess you just say, look, you know, I, I do the best I can, but I'm I don't want to follow Justine up there <laughs> with seven, <laughs> yeah. seven grand slams and five <laughs> finals and 23 titles. And here I am. Well, yeah, I did win a couple. Yeah. That would be interesting if they were forced to arrange the speeches in a way from, from weakest to strongest inductee, just to av- avoid situations like that. I wonder how that does come up. Cause yesterday it was, uh, Mary Pierce was first and she was clearly the most, um, obviously she, she, she grew up in, Canada and the, and the States, despite having played for France, because that's where her mother was from, but uh, English is her first language. Um, she did, her, her struggle in the speaking was, the content uh, was a, a little uh, depressing, and uh, I think maybe she just wasn't perfectly comfortable with addressing an audience. And then Kafelnikov, and then Lina, um, which, you know, again, apart from the language barriers, now you've got people who might not we see them, you know, in, in press conferences and with a microphone in their face, but they're not often in front of hundreds of people giving speeches, I don't think. And, and you well, combine... certainly not a longer speech beyond beyond just the typical, yeah, she played really well out there today, but my forehand, was, you know, that right. and now it's, I gotta... it's a much bigger ask. Right. Yeah, I'm going to talk for 10 minutes about personal stuff and a language that isn't my native language. Uh, it, was, it was pretty rough, but I don't know how they decided and what order to put them. They may have just decided to put the, the guy in the middle or um or maybe you know who knows um it certainly was not in order of accomplishments i think you know we didn't spend much time on it but i think kafelnikov of the three was the most deserving of the 
of the players, um, of the inductees, based on his accomplishments. Uh, but, you know, and I didn't really, I, I kind of missed that era. I don't know. How much did you see Kofelnikov play? Yeah, not very much. Yeah. I wasn't paying a lot of attention in those years. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, two Grand Slams, another Grand Slam loss, uh, 25 titles, you know. I mean, he's right there with, you know, I don't I mean, uh, Safin. And uh, you might put Chang in that category. Chang had one fewer uh, Grand Slam, but a few more appearances. Uh, and then much more value per inch. <laughs> uh, you know, Roddick is kind of a good test case on that side. He got in a couple of years ago, and Roddick is uh, with the one slam. But he did it number one. But Kafelnikov did too. I mean, it's hard to take. A guy who's got two slams and number one and 25 titles, yeah, you know, it's you can't complain too much about that. Yeah, let's let's take this as a good place to wrap it up since I feel like we've come full circle from starting with the notion that it's really hard to figure out who should be in the Tennis Hall of Fame and we've ended with the notion that it's pretty hard to figure out who should be in the Tennis Hall of Fame um, at all sorts of levels from just defining the size and the nature of what the inductee pool should look like to who the players should be once you decide how many you should have. So um, if you are interested in this stuff, Hidden Game of Tennis is... I think that's your, your first source to go look at. I think uh, Jeff has written more about this stuff and done more work than anybody, and maybe one of these days I'll give him a run for his money. It's definitely something that interests me, but not something I've really dug into. So maybe this conversation will inspire you, Jeff, to, to do more, or maybe uh, one of our seven listeners will take it upon him or herself <laughs> to uh, to, to you know, challenge all of our assumptions and, and take it to the next level. Yeah, it's certainly a fun a fun topic, and uh, uh, it 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 keeps on giving. I'll say that because no matter how much work we did, uh, I was only in the Hall of Merit for the few years in the early years, but uh, for baseball, but it, it's not like that stopped. It's not like you know, and new methods are have been developed since since then to evaluate players, and that'll keep happening in tennis as well. And so it's you know, it's sort of like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, and with every with every generation, there will be the new metrics to use. I mean, as you pointed out, it's really tough to, to use some of these stats on older players. Maybe we talked about this before we started recording, but your similarity score, which you were just writing about um, on, on your site, that re- requires match stats. And before, about 10 years ago, on the women's side, we've got nothing in that category. Uh, so if you, if you want to compare players beyond just their one-loss records and their titles and that kind of thing, you really can't do it for women um, more than a couple of generations ago and men you can do better but even still like everything before 1991 is just you're so limited in what you can work with so when we have Hawkeye stats someday maybe someday we'll even be able to use hockey Hawkeye stats ourselves uh, that'll that will change the debate on a lot of players and of course the the various generations will have coming through the lists of what will happen if you know you've got Federer and Nadal, Serena, Venus, and the Bryan brothers all in the same ballot in the same year. Uh, I think I think the board's head will just explode. I don't I don't know what will, their collective head. Uh, or maybe <laughs> we'll have six inductees. I don't know. And yeah, I think that's we'll, probably we'll, likely. I think you're just gonna have a block. I mean, who's, who are you gonna tell to wait? Yeah, because it's inevitable. Yeah, there's there's gonna be a year like that, and and talk about an undercard. The this the Newport semifinals and finals that year uh, <laughs> between like. Tennis Sandgren and Alexander Bublik <laughs> coming back again. Like that'll be the big match of the weekend, and, and Federer and Serena will be there. So uh, lots of pressure to perform. John Isner will play Todd Martin in an exhibition. Yeah, and win. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta have Todd Martin in an exhibition. 
So, yeah. You know, Todd okay, Martin, so... I think, played uh, Matt's V-Lander in an exhibition at Newport. I think it was before, I think it was before the Newport final. And V-Lander retired. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't laugh because he probably was legitimately hurt, but... You don't see that in a lot of exhibitions. <laughs> yeah, you could almost make a joke out of it. Just sit in a chair at the <laughs> at the tee and give it your best shot. Yeah. Um, okay, well, that's an even better note to wrap up on. A ridiculous image of Mats Wielander, um winning an exhibition match. So, Jeff, thanks very much for joining me. It's, this was a, a really valuable conversation. I know our listeners will enjoy it. Uh, we'll have you back again on another episode, I'm sure. Yeah, thanks. I really loved it. Great. Um, so yeah, check out hiddengameoftennis.com for, for Jeff's past and future work. And as always, there's, there's some stuff on Tennis Abstract as well. So we've got some reading to do. Otherwise, we'll be back next week, probably with Carl again. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.